You guys should, I mean, I know I said this last time, but seriously, this was the last week of heavy, heavy homework. This, this next coming week is going to be a lot of just wrapping things up. So you guys should really be so proud of yourself. I'm proud of all of you guys for sticking with it and just really, really excited just to be able to come back next week and really tie it all together. So I'm going to start us with prayer, and we are going to cover the end of 1 Samuel tonight. Dear Holy Father, thank you just for bringing all of us here and for helping us to stick with the study all the way to week seven. This is the longest study we've done, and um, yeah, it's just so exciting to see how many of us have stuck with it, and I pray that just as we wrap things up tonight and, tomorrow and next week, that your spirit would continue to be at work, showing us things, revealing things to us, and helping us um, to really leave here encountering you, encountering a work of your spirit, and being changed by your word. So God, I pray that you would change us tonight, move here tonight, and um, be present with us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are uh, covering chapters 25 through 31 of 1 Samuel. We're kind of finishing up the book. We saw last week with Madison kind of this story about how Saul was trying to get David and to kill him, and David had a chance to kill Saul and did not. So probably as you were reading this week, you probably had some deja vu moments where you're like, wait a minute, I feel like I've already read this story or read something very, very similar, okay? So... I'm going to kind of address that, why we have these two kind of parallel stories. And we start off our text with a very brief statement that Samuel has died. There's not a lot of detail with this statement, which is kind of strange because Samuel is kind of a big deal. So it does seem strange that we're not told a whole lot about his death. But I think that the author just wants to make sure that we know that this has happened because some of the events that happen throughout these next few chapters are going to make more sense knowing with that knowledge that Samuel has passed away, okay? So, like I said, we had this story last week that Madison ended with where, you know, David spares Saul when he has a chance to kill him, proving his loyalty. We would kind of expect that David would return back to Saul because Saul had this heartfelt speech, but that's not what happens. He stays and he remains in the wilderness because most likely he knows Saul at this point and he knows that he doesn't trust him. And we're going to end up seeing this other parallel story where a very similar series of events happens where once again, Saul is pursuing David. Once again, David has a chance to kill Saul, and he doesn't. And once again, Saul's going to give us a heartfelt speech. Now, in the middle of these two accounts, we have this strange little section that gives us a story of something that happened to David while he's in the wilderness with this family, okay? It seems strange that this little story would be in the middle of these two accounts that are so similar, and this little story doesn't have a whole lot to do with this whole big mess between Saul and David. So we have to ask ourselves, when things like this happen, when we have two things that are very similar and something else in the middle, that's a good clue to us as the reader that we should ask why. Why is this story placed where it is? Why does the author choose to put this story about Nabal and Abigail in the middle of two accounts where David has a chance to kill Saul and doesn't? So what we're going to do is we're going to start to kind of like look at what happens with this family with Nabal and Abigail and then see why the author might have chosen to place that where he did. So we see that David is in the wilderness, and while he's there, we start to get our first glimpses of David as a human being who is not perfect. Now remember, David does foreshadow Christ in so many ways, but he is just a foreshadow. He is not Jesus himself, okay? So as time goes on, it's going to become more and more clear that David is not perfect. If he was, we wouldn't need Jesus, the true and better king, to come, okay? So it shouldn't surprise us that we start to see more and more of David's faults as his life goes on because it just shows us that, yes, he's a foreshadow, but he is not Christ, and we do still need Jesus to come. 
So here in the middle of this drama with Saul, we're going to start to see some of those calls in chapter 25. And he's in the wilderness, and he comes across a man named Nabal and his wife Abigail. So him and his men are staying on Nabal's land. The name Nabal means foolish or wicked or a fool. So just his name alone already tells us what we're supposed to think about him. And then um, the text even gives us more information. Like, he's harsh, he's badly behaved. But then the text tells us this contrast with his wife, who is discerning and beautiful. Now, Nabal is rich. He has a huge amount of sheep and goats. And while David and his men are around, they've kind of been looking out for the shepherds and all of the sheep and goats. They didn't take anything from them. They treated them really well. And in that kind of a situation, those sheep and shepherds are vulnerable to a lot of different things, whether it's animals or different predators or other men. So not only do David and his men not take advantage of the the shepherds and the goats and the sheep, but they protect them. Now, this is going to be a time of feasting. We see that because it talks about how they are shearing the sheep, and that kind of is an indication of a certain type of feast that was about to happen. And so David comes to Nabal or sends a man, one of his men to Nabal, to ask, hey, can we have just some bread and some water and some meat so that we can kind of share in this time of feasting? Nabal has plenty to share, Um, But he denies David, and this would have gone very much against hospitality customs of the time, okay? So for Nabal, a man who was extremely wealthy and had plenty to go around to deny David was kind of shocking. And he doesn't just deny him. He kind of insults him at the same time. He kind of says, I don't know who you are. Like, am I just supposed to give all my food to any stranger that comes? And it's very unlikely that he would not have known who David was because remember all the things that David has done up to this point. Everybody in the land would have heard about David who had slain Goliath. So for him to, you know, act like he doesn't even know who David is, I mean, it's probably not true. So David's men, they come back and they tell him like, hey, you know, Nabal said this. And David's not happy. Like, he's actually pretty angry. And so he decides that he's going to take 400 men and go and kill Nabal and his entire household. And that seems like a bit of overkill. Like it starts to kind of make our mind think, well, that doesn't seem like David. That seems more like something that Saul would do. And when we have seen instances where Saul killed entire groups of people for his own personal issues, like he killed all of the priests at Nob for completely selfish reasons. So now we're seeing David do something similar, and it starts to make our mind think, huh, David doesn't seem to be going down quite the same path that he had been before. So then we see the heroine of the story come out, and that is Abigail. One of the servants goes back home, tells Abigail, the wife, of what happened, because this servant knows, hey, Nabal just messed up big time, and there's going to be consequences that are going to affect all of us. And we know already that Abigail is smart. Um, She quickly prepares not just the things that David and his men asked for, but a whole lot of extra. She prepares wine along with the bread, meat, raisins, and fig cakes. And so she kind of goes more extravagant than even what they had asked for. She loads them up on donkeys, and she comes out to meet David and his men before they arrive to attack. Now, I want you to stop for a moment and think about the bravery that she is showing here, because not only is she opposing her husband, which in that culture I'm pretty sure was a pretty big no-no, but she was also choosing to come face-to-face with a man who was coming with an army of 400 men to kill her entire family. Like, this is a really big deal, what she did. Don't overlook how this woman in Scripture is portrayed. We tend to think that there's only a few passages in Scripture that really talk about what it means to be a godly woman, and we kind of go to these passages, but there's so many examples, even especially throughout the Old Testament, of women acting courageously and bravely and showing us different ways that it can look to be a godly woman. She is a great example. Not only does she boldly approach David to try to save her household from her husband's foolishness, 
But when she does come face to face with him, she speaks some pretty rich theology to him, and she points him back to God's truth when he has clearly strayed from it. Because remember, Samuel, Samuel is dead, and so he doesn't have his usual voice, like the access to that voice of God that he is used to kind of steering him down the right path. And so God then brings Abigail to kind of fill in in Samuel's absence. Think about what David was doing here. He wanted to kill an entire household because they have wronged him personally. So in other words, he wants to avenge himself. Again, acting like how we would expect Saul to act. We've seen Saul do that exact same thing. David wants to put his army in harm's way for his own personal vendetta. So he's not fighting for Israel in the story. He's fighting for himself. And so we need, he needs to be pointed back to the right path because he is God's anoint, future anointed king. <clears throat> so Abigail meets him, and I'm going to read the speech that she gives to David. So go ahead, and you can look with me if you want. Chapter 25, verses 23 through 31. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my lord whom you sent. Now then, my lord, as the lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and take your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief for pangs of conscience, for having shed blood without cause, for my Lord working salvation for himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant." So we see in this speech that she gives to David that he's, she's not just asking him, hey, please don't do what you're about to do. Please spare my household. She's not just doing that, but she's reminding him, hey, you're supposed to be fighting battles of the Lord. That's not what this is. This isn't a battle of the Lord. She reminds him, evil is not supposed to be found in you. The Lord is going to make you a sure house. She reminds him of what God has called him to, and she challenges him to be worthy of it. She reminds him when he is king that he needs to be king without the guilt of bloodshed that occurs for selfish reasons, okay? There's a difference between God telling David to go out into battle and him having bloodshed under God's, like, direction and guidance versus him having bloodshed for his own personal vendetta. That's a very different thing. And then she says something that's interesting. She says this, and it doesn't really apply at this moment. She says, if men rise up to pursue you and take your life, then God will be your protector, and God will be the one to take down your enemies. <clears throat> this is interesting because at this moment, that's not really the position that David is in with her and Nabal. Like, Nabal is not coming to take his life. It's kind of the other way around. David is coming to take Nabal's life. So we need to remember and file that away for later. But it does remind David that God is the one who will defeat his enemies, and God is going to continue to do so. 
So this was something that David just needed to hear. And the thing that we need to see about David is as soon as he hears what Abigail tells him, he immediately sees the error of his ways, okay? He immediately turns from his sin. He gives blessing to God for protecting him from his sin. He blesses Abigail for her part in stopping it. He says, go back in peace to your house and that I've granted your petition. Think of the contrast between how David responds when he is confronted with his own sin versus how we have seen Saul respond in the past. Saul likes to blame other people. Saul likes to make excuses. Saul never owns his sin or actually like, says, you are right, you know, like he always has some excuse or some reason. David, on the other hand, he shows true humility and true repentance. He owns that sin. He turns away from it immediately. He's not still clinging to like maybe some little remnants of what he wanted to do, like I'm just going to hurt just Nabal. He turns completely from that sin and back to God, okay? So we see a very clear picture of true repentance in David that we don't typically get to see in Saul. So then we see Abigail goes back home. She wants to tell her husband what happened, but he's drunk, so she has to wait till the next day. And when she does tell him the next day, the text tell us the text tells us that the Lord, um, or that his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. And then about ten days later, the Lord struck him, and he died. So David hears about this. He hears about Nabal's death, and he gives the glory to God because he knows wow, God really did avenge me. It's kind of bringing to completion Abigail's words earlier on. He sees God did avenge him. God brought about Nabal's death, even and when he chose to let it go. And so David did not have to sin by killing anybody for selfish reasons. And I still kind of read this, and I'm like, did Nabal really deserve to die for not giving food to David? I mean, that's, that's still kind of hard to swallow. But I think when you step back and we start to look at the bigger picture of what God was preparing David for, it kind of makes sense on why that punishment was fitting for Nabal. So just kind of keep that in your brain for when we get a little bit further along. Then we see something that kind of maybe take, takes us off guard. It took me off guard. I don't know if it took you off guard. But we read that, wow, David was so taken with Abigail. I mean, who, like how can you not be? She just demonstrated courage and wisdom and discernment. And we heard that she is beautiful. He's so impressed with her that he decides to send for her to take her as his wife. Now, we at first were like, wait a minute, isn't he already married? But then the text is sure to tell us, well, you know, his wife, Mahal, was given to another. But there's still that part of us is like, well, really, is this still okay to do? Well, the author, to kind of let us know how we should think about it, also makes a point to say he also takes another woman as his wife as well. So he's taking two wives at once here. We know from what is told to us throughout the entirety of Scripture that that is not something that God desires. God does not desire for his people to take on multiple wives, especially kings. God is very clear that there was the practice of kings in the surrounding areas to build up riches for themselves and to build up wives for themselves. It was almost a form of status. And God does not want his kings to look like the kings of these surrounding areas. So God has made clear that the kings of Israel are not to do these practices of building and taking wives for themselves. So we already see David. He's already been married once before, and now he's taking these two wives for himself. It's kind of this glimpse into what is eventually going to be a snare to him because he does struggle with women throughout his life. And so if you're wondering, like, uh, so is that okay for him to do? Like, I don't necessarily think the text is endorsing what David did here. This is more descriptive rather than prescriptive. This is not the text saying, and it was good that he did that. It's just saying this is what happened, and it's kind of giving us a glimpse of maybe some struggles that David's going to have throughout his life. So again, we're seeing the humanity in David. We're seeing the things that cause him to stumble or that are going to cause him to stumble even more. So now let's step back and look at this whole story about Nabal and Abigail. 
this story in isolation, it just seems kind of strange and out of place. Like, what's the point? Why is this here? Is this just here to tell us, like, hey, David's not perfect? Or is it to tell us, well, this is how David met his next wife? Like, it just feels strange. But I think when we step back and look at the bigger context of the fact that it fits in between these two other stories, that's when we really start to see its significance and its importance. So let's step, move on to see what comes after it and see maybe how God is preparing David. So right after the story, we see in chapter 26, Saul again hears where David is, and he and a lot of men come out again to try to kill David. Now this story, like I said, it reads so similarly to the one that we looked at last week. It has the exact same flow of events. When Saul is out pursuing him, David and one of his men sneak into his camp while Saul and all of his men are asleep. So I'm assuming that normally if you're out with a bunch of men, like kind of preparing for some sort of battle or war or anything, that there would be some men who would stay up and keep watch. That's kind of my assumption. But we see that the Lord has intervened here and that the Lord has caused a deep sleep to come upon all of the men. So there's nobody keeping watch. There's nobody watching out for Saul. (coughs) So you can kind of picture the scenario David and one of his men come into Saul's camp, and Saul is asleep, and David is standing over him, and there is a spear right there. Like, David could so easily end his troubles and kill Saul right there. He could easily just not have to be on the run anymore. He could breathe easy. He could claim his spot as king, which, after all, God told him he was going to get to be, so it makes sense. It fits. Even the man who is with him is like, look, the Lord has given him into your hands. When you look at just the circumstances, then yeah, that easily could look like God had opened the door for David to kill Saul. That's what the circumstances would have us believe. But David doesn't do it. He doesn't kill Saul. Instead, he says, do not destroy him, for who can put out a hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down to battle and perish. So you guys, he could have easily seen these circumstances as God giving him this chance to kill Saul. So why didn't he? Well, think back to that out-of-place story in the last chapter, and Abigail spoke those words that seemed kind of strange because they didn't fully apply, where she reminds him, hey, when somebody comes to pursue you and try to kill you, God will strike down your enemies. And he is not to make himself guilty of bloodshed for his own personal benefit. Because to kill Saul, he would have been doing it for himself and not necessarily for the good of Israel. He recognized that God is the one who put Saul into office, and God is going to be the one to take him out. Okay, so it didn't apply when she said those words with Nabal, but it sure did apply now with Saul. So God had prepared David for this moment by what happened with Nabal, and David knew from experience, God is going to take care of Saul. I just saw him take care of Nabal. God is going to protect me from being killed, and he's going to protect me from the guilt of bloodshed for selfish reasons. And I think that he had the wisdom to know that his circumstances alone were not an accurate indicator of God's will or direction. Okay, I'm going to say that again. The circumstances alone were not an accurate indicator of God's will or direction. How many times in our life when we're trying to decide what God's will is for us, do we just look at our circumstances and say, well, God has opened this door or God has shut this door David didn't operate based on just the circumstances. He also had truth to discern those circumstances. He had knowledge that God had given him through another person. Just the same that we have knowledge that we are given through our relationship with him and the access to the Holy Spirit and the access to God's word. So we need to have that intimate 
knowledge of what's true, knowledge of what he has taught us in our past through our experiences, through the Holy Spirit, through the word, so that we can accurately assess our circumstances correctly. Because sometimes an open door is not a door that God wants us to walk through. And sometimes a closed door is one that needs to be torn down. So we need to have that access and knowledge of what's true and good and right and holy to assess our circumstances. And I think that David shows us that beautifully right here. So we see, once again, David has spared Saul's life. He takes the spear, he goes a safe distance, and then he starts yelling to wake up Saul and his men. He shows them the spear to prove that, once again, you guys, I could have killed you, and I still didn't. Like, how do you not know that I am loyal to you? I am not a threat to you. And once again, we get another heartfelt speech from Saul. He even calls David his son this time. He says, return back home. I'm not going to pursue you anymore. So we see the exact same pattern that we saw back in chapter 24 last week. Well, obviously, David, he's smart. He does not know. He knows not to trust Saul. So in chapter 27, even though Saul's just told him to return, he's not going to harm him. David knows enough about Saul's mental state that he does not return. And he feels more resolved than ever that one day he's going to die by the hand of Saul if he stays. So he decides his only option is to flee Israel completely. Once again, remember, he did this last week when we were talking, when Madison walked us through all this. And he's going to again turn to the Philistines for refuge. This is such a surprising choice because he did this once already. Like last time he was scared of Saul, he ran to the Philistines, to Gath, where Goliath is from. And obviously they see him coming and they're like seeing him as a threat. And he realizes, oh, my life is in danger here too. He had to act insane to get out of that one. So it's really surprising that he chooses to go to the same place again after it did not work the first time. It just shows how unsafe he must have felt to resort to that. It's a pretty significant choice for him to make. So he goes to Gath in Philistine territory. He brings his wives. He brings 600 men in their household. And somehow he convinces King Achish to let them stay. And from this point on, Saul stops pursuing David. And their paths don't cross anymore because David is no longer in Israel. Saul does not want to expend the efforts to go chase him outside of Israel. He's not the same threat as he was when he is in Israel. So in these last five chapters, these last several chapters, the author is going to start walking us through two different stories, okay? So it's going to feel jumpy, but what's happening is we have two stories going on in these last five chapters. There's the story of David's path at this point, and then there's a story of God's path, I mean, of Saul's path at this point. And the author is going to switch back and forth between these two stories, and he's going to switch at certain key times, either, either to highlight certain points or to create a lot of suspense. So as we move on, it's helpful to keep track of the two stories that are going on in your mind and just to kind of be aware, okay, the author is jumping back to this story and back to this story. So we start with the story of where David is at this point, okay? And this is in the land of the Philistines, Israel's enemy. Now, commentators are a little bit divided on whether this was a smart and righteous move for David or if this was a sinful and fearful move for David. And the text does not tell us how God saw the situation. So we're kind of left to decide for ourselves. Some people that I read were like, well, this was a very fearful decision. It showed a lack of trust in God. It, he wasn't trusting that God would protect him, and it eventually ends up forcing him to lie, which is a sin, and puts him in really bad situations. So we're going to see a lot of that play out here in a few minutes. And so a lot of people say this was a bad decision. Others say this was a pretty smart move. It was his only choice, and he was doing his best with the situation that he had. And if you look at it, you'll see that it allowed him to gain advantage over his enemy while he was in their territory. 
And they look at this and they say, look at how God showed up. Look at how God showed up for him while he was there. It prepared the way for his kingship. So there's these two different schools of thought. Like, was this a good move or a bad move of David? And honestly, like, I can kind of see the merit in both. I don't really know which which side I fall on. And I'm curious to see which side y'all fall on. And there's a lot of information we're not given. Like, we don't know if he consulted with the Lord or not. We don't know if the Lord guided him this way. We just know he did it. And so we're kind of left to fill in those gaps. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to approach these last few chapters as neutrally as possible and just examine the different angles. So let's take a look at why this is so tricky to interpret. David was living with King Achish, um, and he found favor in his sight. So he asks for a place to live in one of the cities. Now, it doesn't give us all the details of how he found favor, but it's cr- you can kind of piece together how that most likely would have happened. It would have had to include convincing Achish that he was no longer an enemy and that he had turned on his people. Okay, He would have to not seem like a threat to Achish anymore, but as an asset. And think about what kind of asset it would be to have the greatest hero of your enemy's army to turn on them and to join you. So to Achish, having David on his side would have seemed like a huge victory and an advantage over Israel. David was like a prize to him, okay? So it makes sense then that if David has managed to convince Achish that he has turned on his people, that yes, Achish, that would be very valuable to Achish. And I can see why he would find so much favor. So David, while he's there, he ends up living in a place called Ziklag. And this was the perfect place for him to be because it was down south, very close to the border of Judah. So like Achish is up here kind of north, like his the place where he is like living. The place Ziklag is way down here, and it's right bordering up against the border to where Judah is right here. So he's like almost back home in, you know, Israel's territory, but not quite. And because he's so far away from the king, he's able to kind of be a little strategic and do some stuff down there, okay, without the king knowing. So he starts to take his men and raid other cities. And the cities that he's raiding are cities that are down south below Philistine territory and below Israel and Judah. And he's kind of choosing cities that either were enemies of Judah or potential enemies of Judah or could become enemies. And then he lies to Achish and he makes the king feel like, wow, like he tells the king, hey, I'm raiding Israel. Like I'm raiding territories in Israel. That's not true. He's not raiding Israel, but the king thinks so. And in order to keep this lie alive, what he does is he, like, makes sure that whenever he raids, they kill every man, every woman, and every child, okay, so that nobody would be left to tell the truth, so that the truth would never get back to King Achish about what he was actually doing. So he deceives the king, and he does it by killing all of these people in all of these towns that are down south below Israel and below Judah and below Philistine territory. Now, we already said commentators don't agree on if it was good or bad that he went to stay in Philistine territory even to begin with. Well, in the same way, not everybody agrees on how to interpret these raids. There are some that are like, this was awful. Like, this was a very bad thing that David did. It shows us more of his sin. And they would say, he's lying to the king and lying is sinful. It's never okay to do that. And he's killing every man and woman and child. That's so barbaric. So there's people that fall into the camp of this was sinful and bad on the part of David. Others say he's showing some great military strategy here. He is managing to still conquer other enemies of Israel, even when he was exiled from Israel and didn't get to be in Israel. They're saying even when he's forced out of his home, he's still able to fight for his people, even when he's in hiding. So there's people on both sides of the fence here. And again, I can see both sides. Like, I mean, I think that 
This one, it feels a little bit harder to, to get on board with in our, from our culture and our context because we don't live in a culture where these raids tend to happen. But I, I can see how when you place yourself into that culture, I can see both sides. And I can't wait for the discussion groups because I really want to hear what you all think about this. Um, but regardless, if it was a good thing or a bad thing, what is clear is that God obviously used it, okay? God is allowing David to prosper while he's living among and deceiving his enemies. And then we see this situation, it starts to escalate. And David finds himself in a super tricky situation because the Philistines are gathering their forces to fight against Israel in a pretty big battle. And Israel is gathering their forces to meet them. Now, David, according to like his lies, Achish thinks that David is on his side now. He's with the Philistines. So Achish comes and tells him, hey, you're going to fight with us. Like, you are going to come out and fight with us against Israel. Like, I'm not just going to hear about your raids anymore. We're going to do it together. And David's going to actually have to do it. Like, he's in a situation where what's he supposed to do? Because he can't lie and trick the king about this time because he's going to be with the king. The king is going to see what he does. If he says no, Achish is going to know he's been dishonest about where his loyalty lies, and he's probably going to have him killed. But if he agrees, then he's truly going to become an enemy to Israel. So this is like one of those cliffhanger moments where the reader is supposed to feel panicked for David. Like we see, wow, he has agreed to fight with Achish. We are supposed to know he is in a huge dilemma here. <clears throat> and then in great literary fashion to make sure we really feel the drama of that situation, the author is going to leave us hanging and he's going to switch stories, okay? Like, think about movies that you watch. Like, a good, I love a good movie and I love a good TV show. And a good storyteller knows how to build up intensity in a story and when to stop for suspense. And that is what the author is doing right here. He has left David with us saying, oh my goodness, what is David going to do? And then he switches over to Saul and leaves us hanging. So, David's in quite the pickle and we're going to have to wait to see what happens. We don't know how he's going to get out of it. But we're going to turn our attention over here to Saul, who is fearful, and he is trembling because he is realizing, I am going to have to face this huge Philistine army that's gathering yet again. Now, Saul gets desperate here, and he resorts to some desperate measures. This is a crazy part of the Bible, you guys. Like, I mean, it does not get much weirder than this. So he is desperate, and he wants to have God's guidance. So sadly, Samuel isn't alive anymore, because remember, that was pointed out to us at the beginning of the section that we've been reading. And we also know that Saul killed all of his priests back in chapter 22. And we also know that God has rejected him as king. So it's not that surprising to us to hear that God is not going to answer him. A lot of times we look at these and we're like, well, God, he's crying out to him. Why aren't you going to answer? And I think a lot of time we've seen throughout the book that when God withholds his first answer to Saul, Saul's true nature then comes forward, because I think that if the same thing were to happen to David, I don't think David would respond the same way that Saul did. So a lot of times God's silence at the first ask reveals what's truly underneath. So God doesn't answer him. He gets even more desperate to hear from God, so he decides that he's going to seek out a medium. And this was a huge departure from God's law to do so. This is something that was clearly against God's law, and Saul had actually outlawed it in Israel's territory. There was a lot of things that were against God's law that were common practice in Israel. You always hear about household idols, which were clearly not a part of God's law, but that were tended to be common at different times. But this was something that Saul had outlawed. And so this is a big deal because up to this point, we've always seen that Saul tends to cling to those external rituals that make him look like he's doing the right and godly thing, but he just didn't really have the heart to match. 
But here, we're seeing that he's even throwing the law out the window. Like, he's not even clinging to that external ritual anymore, but he is kind of going down these pagan roots now. Um, and so he's kind of sunk into some even lower depths. He's trying to seek help in a completely sinful way. Um, he does still care about his reputation, though, so he disguises himself to do it. And he disguises himself. He goes out to find this medium, and he's doing that so that he can have her bring up Samuel's spirit from the dead so that he can ask Samuel what to do because he knows on some level that Samuel is God's mouthpiece, and he is desperate to hear from God. So he is so desperate, he turns to what would have been considered a pagan or even a demonic practice in order to hear from God. And, like, at this point, you know, I can't help but feel a little bad for him because I can just see his desperation. But we have to remind ourselves that the desperation he was feeling right here is not the same as a heart that is posturing itself back to the Lord. It's not the same as a heart posture of worship or submitting to God as his ultimate king. He's really trying to force God to speak to him through ungodly channels. So it's not surprising that he's not going to get the result that he hopes for. So he asks this medium to bring up Samuel, and we see that she cries out when Samuel actually shows up, which is funny. Some commentators think that the fact that she cries out is because she's never actually brought up a spirit before. It's all been kind of a hoax, like this doesn't typically happen all the time. And so when there's actual a spirit that shows up, it really startles her. But then some think, well, it's just because she just realized that it was Saul and she doesn't want to get in trouble or be killed. Um, I think it could be both of those. Who knows? I mean, I don't think that we hear very many stories about in the scripture of people being like brought back from the dead, like their spirits being brought back. So I think that this idea that she was surprised that it actually happened, I think there's something to that. So Samuel is brought up. Saul asks him for help to hear from the Lord. And Samuel basically says, Saul, I have already told you while I was alive that the kingdom has been taken from you and it's going to be given to David. And then Samuel tells him that because that he did not obey God all that time ago, he did not wipe out the Amalekites, that Israel was going to lose the battle tomorrow and Saul and his sons are going to be killed. This is not what Saul wanted to hear. So we leave the scene with Saul and he is terrified. He has no strength. He's so stressed out that he can't even eat. He hasn't eaten or anything all day and night. The medium has to talk him to eating something. Um, and that is where we leave Saul. So guys, if this was a movie, we are at the point where the author has brought us kind of to the climax of both plots of these two stories, right? Because one of our main characters over here, our hero, he's in a position where he's about to be forced to betray the people, his people, who he's supposed to become king over. And then our other main character over here has demonstrated this, ex like, this, he's at his lowest low. Like, he is in this, like, extreme desperation because of what all of his actions throughout the year have brought him to. And now he knows he's about to face his own death. So we kind of have reached the, the, the high points, the climax of both stories, and now the author is going to start bringing about the resolution to both of those stories and eventually show how they kind of tie back together. So let's see what the resolution to these two stories are in these two predicaments. So first, we're going to go back to David and his predicament, chapter 29. More and more Philistines are gathering, getting ready to go and attack. And as the, all these other lords and other commanders are coming, they see David and his men, and they're not on board with the situation the way that Achish is. Like, David's won over Achish, but this seems to be new information to the rest of the leaders, and they don't trust David. They wisely are like, why on earth would we let David fight with us? He's going to turn on us. Like, he's obviously still loyal to Israel. We can't trust him on the battlefield with our lives. So they basically tell Achish, like, no, this is not going to happen. So Achish goes and tells David that he can't come after all, 
and because he's trying to pacify these other men. <clears throat> then we see what I really think is supposed to be a funny exchange. Like, this is so comical um, because David, he knows, wow, I just got out of this situation. And he kind of starts to lay it on thick. And he starts saying things like, well, but why? Like, what have I done? Haven't I been blameless before you? Like, really acting like, man, I'm so disappointed. I really wanted to go fight against Israel. And then, like, think about how these stories would have been told, like, in, like, this oral tradition. Like, you can almost imagine somebody telling the story the way that they're going to portray Achish right here. Um, as Achish is like, yes, you've been like an angel of God to me. I mean, there's so much humor and irony in this exchange here. It feels so over the top because we, the reader, know that David has been lying to him this whole time. And Achish comes out looking like a total fool when he calls David a angel from God. So... I just think that that part's so funny. So then he sends David and his men away, which gets him out of having to betray his own people or put his life in danger by refusing to betray his own people. Now, it's hard to know if David acted honorably in these chapters by coming to live among the Philistines or by raiding these other places or by lying through his teeth to Achish. But regardless of if David was righteous in his actions or not, it is clear, like we said earlier, that God was still at work protecting him and preserving him for his role as the future king of Israel. One author said this, and I thought that it was so profound, and she said, God writes straight and crooked lines. So we see that David, we don't know which of his lines were straight and crooked. We're just left to speculate, but I think that there's some crooked lines in there for sure, but God continues to write straight through those crooked lines because God's plans are not going to be stopped or thwarted or anything like that based on a person's sin, okay? So God writes straight and crooked lines. Guys, I cannot imagine a worse position for God's anointed future king in than to be forced to fight against the very people that God, char God charged him to protect and lead. And as only God can do in just a few short verses, God untangled David's predicament and got him out of it like that. I think it's so easy to just get hung up on deciding if David's actions were righteous or not. But if you think about it, aren't our lives kind of the same? Like, we don't always seek the Lord. We don't always hear from the Lord. Sometimes our decisions are made after a lot of prayer, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes it's just us doing the best we can with the knowledge and the wisdom that God's given us. And sometimes they're outright sinful. <clears throat> sometimes we're pretty sure about what direction God wants us to go in. But sometimes we're not, and sometimes we go the wrong way knowing that it's the wrong way. So just as we feel doubt about David's actions, we often feel doubt about our own choices. Like, did I make that choice for godly reasons, or was that for selfish reasons? Was that a fearful choice or a prideful choice, or was I have, did I have holy motives? Did I feel God really leading me that way or this way? Did I make the right choice? Sometimes it's really hard to know if our lines are straight or, cur or crooked or curvy. Um, what a comfort there is in David's story here that even in all the uncertainty of whether he was acting righteously or not, that God still works out his plan perfectly. And just like he did with David, in our lives too, he is always going to write straight with our own crooked lines. And that is so freeing to all of us. So let's move on to chapter 30, because even though it seems like David just got himself out of a mess, we're going to see that he is not totally out of the woods yet. They go back, him and his men, to their current homes in Ziklag. Remember, that's the city in Philistine territory that they're living in. 
And while they were gone, they find out that the Amalekites have raided while they were gone. The city has been burnt down and everybody was taken. Everybody's wives, everybody's children, they are all have been taken. Not killed, just taken. Now, the Amalekites should seem familiar to you because back in chapter 15, Saul was told to wipe them all out, and that was the big thing that got him in trouble is that he did not. He only wiped out what was useless and kept what was beneficial to him. So now we're seeing that Saul's failure to take care of those Amalekites had some consequences, and David is in a situation where him and all of his men have lost their whole families. His men are angry, and they're even talking about stoning David. So David is now reaching kind of a dark moment as well. And we see in this devastating situation where David's men are even starting to turn against him that David seeks the Lord. We saw a few chapters ago Saul attempting to seek the Lord in his darkest moment. And he was so desperate that he did it in a very unholy, in a very sinful way, using a medium or a sorcerer or whatever word that you want to insert there. Now, with David in a similar situation needing to hear from God, we're meant to see another really big contrast between how Saul was doing it at this point and how David was going to hear from the Lord. Because while Saul used these shady methods, the text takes a lot of care to show us that David was using holy methods. He sought a priest in an ephod, and that was the approved way to inquire of the Lord. And then the most notable difference is that God actually answered David, and he had been silent with Saul. So when he answers David, he says, yes, I want you to pursue the Amalekites, and you will surely rescue all. And we see that David does. He believes God. He, he believes that God is telling it, leading him and guiding him accurately. So he goes and he pursues the Amalekites, and that he rescues and brings back every single person. He wipes out pretty much the whole enemy. There are a few who escape, but it's not because David spared them for his own benefit, and it was not these mighty warriors. It was just some younger men who got away. And so we kind of see that, once again, David has been able to subdue the enemy in a way that Saul was not. Not only at this point now was David a hero against the Philistines, defeating Goliath while Saul sat passively by, but now he's also the hero against the Amalekites that Saul had failed to wipe out. And in both situations, we see David earnestly seeking God's direction and giving God the glory. And then we see a really smart move from David. Okay, because we see in the text that the Amalekites didn't just raid David's current town. They had also raided a lot of cities in Judah. So when he defeats them, he's getting back not just his own men's possessions, but also everything that had been taken from Judah and the other places that the Amalekites had raided. So in fighting for his men here, he was also fighting for and helping Judah. And then we see at the end of chapter 30, he decides to send a lot of that spoil to a lot of the territories throughout Judah. So why do you think he did this? Well, remember, he had been living among the enemy for, I think most commentators said, like a year and a half at this point. So it would be easy for Israel to assume that he was now an enemy as well. So in recovering what the Amalekites had taken, not just from his men, but also from Judah, and then sending the spoil back to all these cities in Judah, he was showing them that even behind enemy lies, lines he was still with them and he was loyal to israel he was still protecting his people even when he was forced to flee to the enemy it's hard enough to protect your people when they have your back david here is managing to fight for and protect judah even when he's forced to flee to the enemy and hide behind enemy lines and so now he's sending this spoil back to judah to make sure that the people don't question where his loyalty lies so 1 Samuel ends with, Saint, with David looking pretty good. I mean, yes, he has had a lot of significant trouble in this book. Like, he has been running for his life against Saul for a very long time. 
But we see throughout the text that God has used all of these events to show that God's hand is with David. And then we can kind of look back and see a lot of the things that maybe God was doing. Because when David married Abigail, he most likely obtained the rights to Nabal's land because Abigail was Nabal's widow. So in marrying her, he obtained the right to Nabal's land. So now he had a very significant property in southern Judah. And then when he defeats the Amalekites and sent the spoil back to Judah, he ensured that he would be welcomed back there. So he could now go back to Judah knowing that he would be welcomed and not seen as an enemy or a threat. The fact that he now had this land and this favor with the people, it kind of positioned him once again to have some sort of political claim to the throne. Because before that, he was exiled and had not, he was no longer had this royal marriage. So there's like, obviously there's the fact that God had anointed him as king, but there's also kind of political channels that had to happen as well. And those political channels had been taken away by his exile. So by his marriage to Abigail and by, you know, finding favor again with Judah, he is kind of regaining some of that political ability to have access to that throne again. So we see God at working again, probably some wavy lines, but God is using it for his purpose. So then, in our last chapter, gosh, I wish we could end there on that high note, but guys, it ends rough, I'm not going to lie. In our last chapter, we return to Saul, whose story sadly ends on a very different note. Because while David is over here poised for kingship, Saul's downfall is about to be made complete. When we left Saul a few chapters ago, we were left on this cliffhanger that he was just told that he was going to die in battle tomorrow, him and his sons. So now in chapter 31, the final chapter of 1 Samuel, the battle is here. And we read of Saul's death and of Jonathan's death and his other son's death. We see that just as God brought about the death of Nabal, saving David from taking matters into his own hands, he also brought about the death of Saul, saving David from having to kill the Lord's anointed. So David is able to now walk without the fear of Saul killing him, and he is not the one who had to sin. He did not have to sin to do it. And guys, Saul's death is not glamorous. The Philistines were told they cut off his head. They strip off his weapons. They send those weapons throughout the land. They fasten his body up where it's going to be seen. And they're basically like using it as a trophy to show that Saul has been defeated. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Like this is a pretty rough way to have to end a women's Bible study, you guys. Um, but, you know, this, th- we have to remember that 1 Samuel is not, it's part of a larger book. 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, they're written as one book. So we're not really meant to stop here. We see this like rise and fall of Saul. The end of the fall of Saul is really paving the way for this future hope. And luckily, we don't have to end on that gory, gory note. There is a little bit of future hope that we see in the last few chapter, last few verses. So go ahead and read with me verses 11 through 13 of chapter 31. <coughs> it says, But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So we see that despite his tragic downfall and the horrible way in which he dies, he was still the Lord's anointed for a time. And there's still some valiant men who bring back his body and his son's bodies to allow them to have some dignity in their death and burial. And I think that this is to help us to not sit in the darkest part of him right here, okay? We kind of see a little bit of hope. Bill Arnold, one commentator, he said this. He said, 
We are not left on this theme of judgment having no hope. There is a quiet waiting, an anticipation, which finds fulfillment in 2 Samuel. The narrator has carefully prepared us for the second anointed one who is ready to fulfill his role in history and in God's plan. So yeah, this is a tough place to end, but this is supposed to be like the pathway to the hope of David, which is supposed to be like, again, pointing us to Christ, the greater king to come. So even though we're going to see a bigger picture, hopefully I go, I'm hoping that you guys will come back when we do 2 Samuel, hopefully next year. Um, I still think there's a lot of value in stepping back and stopping here at the end of 1 Samuel and looking at Saul's life and David's rise and seeing what did David have that Saul lacked and where did that get each of them? Because as we said a few weeks ago, primarily we're not supposed to look at Saul and David and say, I want to be like David. David's supposed to like be who I identify with, not Saul. That's a secondary application. Primarily, we should look at Saul's life and tragic death as a picture of where our lesser gods and lesser kings will, how, how they're going to measure up. Like, they cannot deliver, okay? But then I do think there is also value in that secondary application of stepping, stepping back and seeing the examples that Saul set and that David set. Because David still had God as his ultimate king. So with David as king, truly God is being king because David lived. He truly lived in a way that showed that God was the one reigning and ruling. It was not about David. He was merely somebody that God was using. Saul, on the other hand, gave lip service to God as king at best. Functionally, functionally, he lived as though God existed to serve him, and he disregarded God's instruction and guidance. He lived for his own glory and not for God's. So we should all ask ourselves, who is our ultimate king? Are we like Saul, where we have the appearance of religion, but in reality we're just worshiping ourselves? Or are we like David, where we're truly living in submission to God and seeking his glory above all else, that God is our ultimate king and we are merely being used by him? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these examples that we have throughout the book of 1 Samuel. There's so much here and so much that we can glean from this. And God, I pray that as we leave and discuss, that you would continue to bring to mind whatever it is that you're impressing upon us. I pray that we would all be encountering your Holy Spirit right now and that you would be bringing new understanding to our eyes and to our hearts. I pray that that would work itself out in our discussions and that we would continue to dwell on the entire book of 1 Samuel. This week, as we kind of do our wrap-up homework, Um, God, I pray that it would just sink in even more, whatever it is that you're wanting us to leave with here. So God, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. And I pray that you would continue to be with us as we discuss this in our groups. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay.